Happy Christmas Eve. Happy Christmas Eve. Merry, Merry Christmas, Christmas Eve. Eve. Yeah, that was awkward. Yeah. I'm thinking that- like happy birthday and then, oh, man, butchered it. Out the gates. I hope that's not a reflection of my day. Well, you can kiss your you-know-what goodbye. <laughs> that's right. And um, I'm out. Yeah. Um, yeah, this is exciting. You're ramping up. This is like your Super Bowl. A little bit. You know, I always psych myself out for... Christmas masses yeah. and and the Easter masses because all the visitors, you know, Lords doesn't get very many visitors. I'm excited to see if St. Louis does. Interesting. The, Lords the, is always packed. For not really. For, you don't think so? It's packed at the at certain masses. Oh, fourth. Yeah, okay. The four o'clock mass is always insane. People were laughing at me this past Sunday at the 6 p.m. Because I was like, if you want to have a prayerful experience of Christmas. Do not come to the front. <laughs> you said that Saturday too. We were laughing. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think, but it's, I talked to one of our staff, Diana Baham. Yeah. Who is wonderful. We love Rock Diana. Star. But her and her husband and her kiddos, they live down in Castle Rock. And she was saying that this, that she told me this this morning, that the church in Castle Rock, they get such a huge amount of Christers, as we call them, Christmas and Easter people. Yeah. So they get so many creasters that their overflow is the Douglas County Fairgrounds. What? And they just live stream to like the I think that's what she said, the Douglas County like fairgrounds. It was certainly a public, it wasn't a Catholic. No building. way. Yeah. And and I think one of the things demographically is in places like Castle Rock or the different suburbs. Yeah. You just have a demographic of people that are more likely to go to church, even if it's only twice a year. Yep. Whereas in Denver, I think there's there for whatever reason, there's more agnostics and atheists and you just have less people that are going to go to church on Christmas. Right. So we get our four o'clock is crazy. Our 10 o'clock is usually very full. We added the six thirty this year at Lord's. And then, but Christmas day, it's very empty. Dead. Yeah. yeah. I would imagine actually it so, feels like, I mean, you're getting released on this one, right? All archdiocesan priests can now, I mean, there's no archbishop had put out for the last couple of weeks kind of guidance. Yeah. And then now are you on your own? Oh, there's still guidance. No, he still wants us to, this is the last week, I think, of oh. the preaching series of the Kerygma. So he wants us to basically sum all of it up at Christmas for all the people who haven't been coming. <laughs> no pressure. That sounds horrible. It's a little bit tough, but it's, but I've been telling people, Lords, that the charisma, right? The basic gospel message that all of us should be, if, so, if you know, you've probably heard me say it, if you're on an airplane and the pilot comes on the air and he says, we've, okay, folks, we're going to be on the ground in three minutes. And the person next to you hasn't talked to you the whole plane flight. And they turn to you and they say, Hey, I saw that you were reading a Bible or, or I saw that you have a cross on your neck. What does it mean to be a Christian? Mm. And you've got three minutes that all of us should be like, have something that we can say to basically sum up what it means to be a Christian in three minutes. And that's one way to look at the charisma. Got it. Basic message. In three minutes, can you tell somebody what it means to be a Christian? That's awesome. So are you going to give a three minute homily? I knew you were going to say that. Come on. (laughs) I knew you were going to say that. Yeah. Yeah. No, I don't don't think it's likely, but that. Yeah. Well, I'm excited. We are going to the 430. Nice. Excellent yeah. choice. Baby life. Yep. Yeah. Baby Gianna is, is her first Christmas. It is. That's it, exciting. It is. And we, 
decorated our house. Um, it looks like the uh, the out of Elf, the store that he works in. Sure. I mean, we went above and beyond. You did. We have three Christmas trees. It's nuts. It is like a winter wonderland mm. when you walk in. And, uh, and it's kind of funny because I'm like, she, I'm still a few years away before she'll appreciate anything. You know, like this is a solid trial run that I'm not looking forward to taking down. And she has become obsessed with the Christmas lights. Yeah. So I told Steph today, I was like, unfortunately, like right before bed, we'll stand there. And she likes eventually starts to just doze off. Mm-hmm. And I was like, man, we're keeping these trees up until she no longer enjoys the Christmas lights because mm-hmm. it is crucial. Um, bedtime. Oh, it's big. Yeah, it's kind of funny when, when you have a newborn, I don't know the like delineations of when, when you move on from being a newborn, but Gigi isn't exactly at an age where she can really appreciate presents yet. <laughs> no. Right? no. Uh-uh. So it'll be, that'll be kind of a fun transition when she hits an age where she kind of gets it. And yeah. It'll probably be a great blessing and kind of a curse too. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be over. I mean, we already got a bunch of presents and like a million stuffed animals. But she right now is in the phase of, I never, I never thought I would want her to be a thumb sucker. Uh-huh. Um, and I only wanted the passy just because I fear trying to wean her off eventually of sucking her thumb. Right. But for the, my sanity and sleep and for Steph, it'd be so rad if she can go like finger out, you know, like arm yeah. out uh, the little night sack thing and do the thumb. But her, honestly, her thumb's not big enough. So she's like finally starting to get the motor skills to try to pull it off, but we're still, still a ways away. It's the little things. It is. Well, we're going to, we're going to hit some kind of just reflections on Christmas today. Before we do that, I I think at this time of year, it's just a great reminder to folks. If you're looking for a place to donate before year's year end. Yeah. uh, Patrick is our development director and we've got two Two kind of places they could give, right? We do. We have a, a generous donor gave us um, a $25,000 year-end match, um, which is a big push for our school. Obviously, we try a handful of ways to fundraise for our school and tuition assistance and our families that um, we have a pretty uh, diverse demographic of families. And right now, I think it's 48% of our families are on tuition assistance. So... Um, it's imperative to keep um, just solid Christian Catholic families who love classical um, and affording Catholic education is tough. It is. It's, it's expensive and it's expensive to operate. So um, these are all crucial for us. So we have the year end match, which um, is cruising along right now, um, but we still have a few weeks left. And then um, our school gala which yeah, we spoke about last time. It that's is your Super Bowl. It is. Yeah. I mean, and I always laugh. I'm always like, man, the gala, I just, it's on uh, January 15th. And I'm like, man, January 15th at 11 p.m. I was going to say, which feel, hour are you going to yeah, yeah. It's like, once you get all the silent auction items out of there, blah, blah, blah. But it's really not. You got to wrap your mind around like two weeks afterwards because you got to close out statements, yeah. send all this stuff. Um but it's just an awesome night. And that one also goes towards um, supporting our families and students. Yeah. So um, yes, if you consider giving, uh, write a check, 
send it to the office, drop in off Tory, um, or you can go online and you can purchase a ticket online as well. Just at lordsdenver.org. There's links to yeah. send you there. So the only plug I'll make, I told the folks at Mass is when I first came to Lord seven and a half years ago, we had roughly a hundred kids in our school. Man. Uh, and Catholic education across the country is in really bad shape. It's really in danger of collapsing. Lords has gone in my seven and a half years here from about a hundred kids to 355 this year. And we have 390 registered for the fall mm -hmm. already. And more important than just the numbers is that our school, the reason that's driven the growth is because our school is not a normal school with a cat, with a religion class tacked on. It's a school where there's a culture of faith. Yep. And people know it. And then that's why it's grown. They walk in the doors and they're like, yep, this is what I want. Yep. And it's just expensive for, you know, we won't go into all the details, but anyway, if you're looking for something to support, uh, we would love for you to help us educate kids in the faith. And we think it's a great mission. So lordsdenver.org and you can make donations there. Um, and thanks for considering that. Yep. Thanks for bringing that up. You're welcome. You yeah, caught me off guard with that one. I yeah, man. Hey, I'm looking, I, I'm there it is. It. Yeah. yeah. So here we are. So here we go. Christmas. We're at Christmas. It doesn't feel like it in Denver. Denver, we've had a Gosh. incredibly dry year. This, this tonight, it's supposed to get a bunch of snow in the mountains. Okay. But not in Denver. They're supposed to get over a foot in the mountains tonight. So wow. that's good. Yeah. It's been so dry. It does not feel like we're there yet. Yeah. And so Christmas, right? There's, there's a million things we could say about Christmas. Um, but today, I think I want to just start with the idea of a feast. Hmm. and. Uh, feasts are not something that are unique to Christianity. <clears throat> the ancient pagans had feast days. One thing you may have heard us speak about before is that in the ancient world, there was no such thing as a weekly day off. The only ones who had that were Jews. So if you were, if you lived in Greece or in Italy or Gaul or Asia minor, wherever you might live, um, you didn't have a weekly day of rest there were feast days periodically where you would get a day of rest, but it wasn't every week. And we, owe, so we owe our, we, our concept of the weekend to Judaism first for Saturdays. That's, yep. you know, and then to Christianity for Sundays. And so it's a religious meaning that ultimately is connected to rest. And I think that's a really important concept is that if you don't have a bigger purpose in your life, that religion provides, you won't find rest. Uh, your life will be given over to the things of this world. So kind of a cool thing to think about is that Plato, Plato says that the gods gave, right? And Plato's not a Christian or a Jew. He's a pagan. So he believes in many gods. And so Plato uh, says the gods gave feast days to humanity so that they might stand upright. What do you think about that? Interesting. Okay. Like the whole, as you were starting to say this, I'm like, wow, I guess the nature, I mean, you definitely had, um, I guess like tax collectors and that kind of stuff, but the nature of life back then was very, um, blue collar. So I feel like it'd be tough to even agrarian society. Right. And so when you have people, yeah, exactly. So you have people like, as we think of maybe white collar, yeah, they're either going to be like royalty or scribes, right? There's a, there's not a high literacy rate. So oftentimes the, the kind of elite class was actually priestly. So priests in like Egypt or Rome or Greece, 
they're going to have more leisure because they need to know how to read and write for the sake of the religious life of the society. Yeah. So, so traditionally before, before the printing press really, and there's a long history of education in, in Western civ about this, but um, priests were, were generally better educated than the mass of society, not because it was against, we were against that, but it was an agrarian culture. And so people needed to work on the farm or, you know, be, be at work all day and they weren't given over to education. Yeah. Like it's interesting. I mean, it's to me, that form of work, um, the blue collar thing where it's like a task, you know what you're doing in and out. That is something I can, um, I wouldn't necessarily say like thrive in, but I feel like the intellectual life, like for you, yeah. Um, where your day off, you want to go read and like, you're going to enjoy. And, and I'm not saying Sundays, but, um, when you do have time off, that's where you thrive. I yep. feel like I get emotionally and physically exhausted from even just like <laughs> intellectual, right. you know, like I'm tired right. no matter what, but it's just an interesting reflection on life back then. So there's some really cool things about this. So, so Plato says it's tied. This is the idea of education is very tied to what Plato says. So Plato says that the gods gave human beings feast days so they could stand upright. And the first thing that I think of when I hear that is, oh, like that means you have a burden on your back. Interesting. Okay. And so you're kind of hunched over when you have a burden on your back. And so a feast day is day, you get to take the burden off your back and you can stand upright. Got it. And that is one of the things Plato means by that. But he actually means something more profound. And this is where it ties to like the, the religious uh, kind of class, the priestly class and to the idea of a feast day and to, to education, all these things tie together actually. But what it is, is that, so what Plato means even more than that is that animals, especially quadrupeds, right? Four legs, animals tend to only look down. And so Plato, what he's getting at when he talks about this is that a human being standing upright can look into the heavens. And what that means for, for Plato, it's an allegory for him. It's an image for him of so much of my life is given to look at earthly things. Oh, that is powerful. Okay. Isn't that good? I yeah. I did that. not see this curveball coming my I way. I love that from Plato. And so yeah. if you don't have religion in your life, when this relates to Christmas, as we're going to get to in a second everything in your life is given over to earthly things mm -hmm. and not that they're all bad, but at the end of the day, what Plato wants to say is that if your life is given over just to things of this world, you won't live a life that's fully human. You'll become something less than human. Uh, and I find, I find that so amazingly true. And so allegorically, or as a, as a kind of image of that, that the man who, or the, or the woman who is captivated by religion who's given religion, they can look into the heavens, which doesn't just mean physically. It means that they're able to worry themselves or to focus on things that aren't just about how am I going to put food on the table? Right. And I think that's still true today to our modern world in our modern world, right? We all know it. We're all this way. So am I in too much. So it's just so easy to be fixated on all the stuff I got to do. Mm -hmm. 
and entertainment and shopping and does my yard look the right way? I've got 18 Christmas trees in my living room. <laughs> you know, I don't really. Patrick does though. That's right. Yeah. And so, but wait, what Christmas does is it, is it actually takes your gaze off of looking down at the things of this world. And it looks up into the heavens in the sense of, does my life have a meaning? Mm-hmm. Is there truth? Is there purpose? Um, I'm going to stop thinking about my grocery list or my present list I have to think about. And I'm going to think about a feast day frees me to contemplate things that aren't just what I have to get done today. And last point on this, and I'll throw it back to you. Last point on this is that this is the, literally the meaning of the word school. Literally where the, the word derives from is from the, the word skole. And what it originally means is a, a place that had been separated off. And what a school in its, in its beginnings is, and you go all the way back to Plato's Academy in Athens. And I'm reading right now a book by Christopher Dawson that I meant to read like 15 years ago. And it's called The Crisis of Western Education. Um, but he traces this whole history. And what a school is, is that all of us have stuff we just got to do. Yep. I've got a, you know, your, your wife has her honeydew list, right? Do you know what that is? What the hell is that? You haven't heard that? No. <laughs> so the, so it's an old joke from married people and they'll say honeydew and it means honeydew this, 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 Oh, that's this, funny. This, this, okay. This, this. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I was, you really caught, yeah, that one. I was like, what is that? But I was letting you roll. Yes. Okay. So a school, what a school is meant to do was to provide leisure, to provide a space where there is a certain amount of society. And I would say, and this, even aside from just schooling and education, this is what Sunday is about. This is what a feast day is about. Is it supposed to provide a space where I can think about things other than my honeydew list? Yep. And I can think about, wow, I'm 41 years old now. And man, what's life about? And I'm, you know, maybe halfway or who knows, maybe I'm nine tenths of the way through my life. Nobody knows. What's the meaning of my life? And I can look into the heavens and, and think about things like truth and knowledge and wisdom and love. Um, and that's what Christmas is about, right? Christmas is this moment that all of us should be able to stop thinking about the practicals. And that's, that's, that really is the insidious nature of the modern world is we've turned literally one of the moments that all of us are supposed to stop thinking about all this crap we do all the time. Yep. And remember like the story of the world and the story of our lives that we came to be rescued by, or the son of God came to rescue us and to rejoice in that and be free and not worry about what's in the oven. Um, and the modern world's turned it upside down and the modern right. world's made so- all about that stuff. And not to derail this, but would you, um, would you like to see more people at mass on Christmas day? I feel like not to generalize, but I feel like it's indicative of, I don't, you know, I'd rather go to Christmas Eve. We got presents to open. What is in the oven starting to prepare for all that kind of stuff? Like, has it, um, lost that aspect? I mean, it certainly has. I would just say, I don't mind people going, there's something nostalgic, you know, about Christmas Eve mass. Right. And I do love like, we, we don't have a midnight mass at Lord's, but the mass when it's dark outside, 10 o'clock. Totally. 
I love that mask. It's basically the four o'clock now, but yeah. People will call sometimes and they're like, hey, do you guys have a midnight mass? And we're like, and like, what, or they'll say, what time is your midnight mass at? And I just laugh at that question. Totally. But so I'm not against people coming on Christmas Eve. What I am against is the, the loss of the inner center of what Christmas is about. And any feast day for that matter is it's meant to be a time that sets you free. Yep. And that's, and Christmas is supposed to remind us that you weren't made for an empty inbox. As I always say, you were not made for a perfect yard or a better homes and gardens type house. There's something. And if, and if you live your life for that, you're going to feel it over the years, you're going to go through and you're going to say, you're going to feel hollowed out inside because you're missing the true meaning of your life. And that's, that's what religion gives us. And that's what Christ gives us. So that's what I'm against. Wow. Okay. So, so on Christmas day, there's nothing wrong with do the presents thing, see the family. I think that's great. Um, but also like, especially adults out there, do you have space in your life to really just forget about all of your day-to-day anxieties and rejoice? And this is the, uh, the true meaning of a feast day. A feast day is supposed to remind us that even despite all the difficulties, the world is good, that life is good, and there's something to rejoice about. And the real thing we have to rejoice about as Christians is that God came to set things right. Just so cool. That's awesome. Through Jesus on Christmas Day. Yep. On Christmas Day. So, what do you want to talk about with Christmas? Well, I was hoping to talk about Christmas being kind of a reflection of the birth and death of Jesus. Yes. Yeah, so Patrick and I are talking about this. So, one of these days, we we always say it, but COVID right now is ruining the world still. But... We've got to get to, to Israel. Oh, it'd be so awesome. And Be- Bethlehem is a cool place. It really is a great place to go. Um, so in the Gospels, so you really only have two places where the birth of Jesus is told. It's in Matthew chapter two and Luke chapter two. Uh, you have slight hints at it, in other words, but they're just very passing hints. The real stories just come from those two places. So. Um, so in, let's look at, let's look at Matthew's gospel. So in Matthew chapter two, uh, by the way, shout out to Don Lasasso. Uh, oh, Don. Got my Bible fixed that I ran over with my own car. Really? Yeah. How in the world do you do that? It's back. I don't know. I must've been drunk with power. No. <laughs> yeah. How did Don do that? Oh, how did Don do that? <laughs> She took it to a book binding place and it was a complex process, but like, let's say an eighth of my Bible was beyond repair. So they did surgery and they found an identical Bible and they took those pages out of my, the trashed one. Yeah. Put new ones in from a brand new Bible and were able to save the rest Whoa. and bound it all together. <sighs> Pretty cool. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, so a lot is going on in the story of Jesus's birth. Um, but, uh, so one of the things we want to talk about, so Jesus' birth is connected to his death. So Patrick and I were talking about how he, your dad has been put in, he's going to be put into a, like kind of assisted living situation. That's right. Yeah. He's been, he's been going through a lot. So we've, 
um, and he was in our basement and it just became too much. So um, it's been a really interesting process putting him into uh, senior living. And, you know, I've always kind of heard it. And I think I, in a weird way, like I hate hospitals. I fear um, death to an extent uh, from the standpoint of I get awkward in these senior living. Steph thrives. I mean, she was going over and talking to the dinner tables, like chatting everybody up. Right. Um, I am very awkward with it, but it's been a really cool reflection to start to talk to some of these people and how, um, I don't know, it's, it's all the emotions involved. And, and you really start to reflect on, you know, they're getting older, death, what's their regrets, what's their, what did they focus on? You really start to kind of have these conversations with them and yep. it really puts things into perspective really quick. Yeah. And it's like the feast day, right? It makes you think That's about right. Okay, what is life really about? Because it's coming to an end, you know? It's, yeah. And it is for all of us, but obviously nursing homes make us, and assisted living centers make us feel that way. It's, yeah, it, to me, it, it's, uh, it's tangible. Like it's in front of you. Yeah, um, it absolutely is. You know, like it, it takes everything you're learning in scripture, but it, it really puts a uh, sense of gratitude and um, purpose in your life it, more than I've ever experienced. Yeah. Yeah, no, amen. And so Jesus, one of the things Patrick and I were talking about, Jesus is the three wise men. One of the things they do, and there, there's a couple pieces here that show us, the, the New Testament wants to show us that Jesus's birth and his death go hand in hand. And so Luke and Matthew really kind of want to show us this. And one of the places we see this are the, the wise men. And there's, there's lots of cool stuff about the wise men, but they're coming from the East. And they're looking for the king of the Jews. And who's, who's the king in Israel at that time? Not Jesus, but who's the other king? <laughs> you should know this. Come on. Uh, I don't know. He's, I'll give you a hint. He tries to kill all the children, the holy innocents, who are, and he does kill them, who are ages two and younger. Oh, dang it. The king. It's the king of, uh, you know, <laughs> it's Herod, that guy. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's also, so there's different Herods in the new Testament. I think there's four of them, if I remember correctly, but Herod is, um, this is Herod the great and he's his kingdom. When he dies, will be divided, uh, to, to his children, but there's going to be a Herod of Jesus's birth and a Herod of Jesus's death. Oh, and in Matthew's gospel, you're going to have a big theme and all of them have it, but especially Matthew's of the kingdom. Jesus is going to talk about the kingdom all the time in Matthew's gospel. And at the very beginning of the gospel here in chapter two, right? Chapter one's the genealogy. But in chapter two, you have these wise men who are looking for the king. Where is the one who is to be born king of the Jews? Right? And you have Herod who's threatened by this. Yep. Right. Um, and at the end of the gospel, right. In, uh, in Matthew's passion narrative. So the, uh, last supper in Matthew is chapter 26, the cross comes in chapter 27 and then 28, you really have the, the resurrection. But what happens, right. Is at Jesus' death, you have the same thing. So you have these people coming to look for the King of the Jews. And when Jesus is crucified, he's going to be crucified as the king of the Jews. 
And you have people who are threatened by this. You have Herod, you've got Pontius Pilate, you've got the high priest Caiaphas and Annas. And then you have the, the whole Sanhedrin really and the Pharisees. But so the wise men come and their three gifts are. Uh, Mirror. Mirror. um, Gold. Gold and. uh, The incense deal. Yeah. Frankincense. That guy. That guy. (laughs) Yeah. So the, uh, the gold and traditionally the way the church has understood this, these three gifts have symbolic meanings. And so the, the gold is symbolic that Jesus is a king. Yep. So they come to offer him gold that's fit for a king. What do you offer frankincense to? Father Brian, when he's listening to classical, classical yeah, right. rant. I do like, I do, I do like having incense in my <laughs> office. I'm a boulder hippie at heart. That's right. Uh, no, but who, who do you usually use incense with? Just knocked over my coffee. Um, it's okay. I don't know. I, I've never really been a big incense guy. Well, when, you, when do you see incense inside it, except in my office? Outside of my office. At, well, at mass. Walking yeah. yeah. Okay. So incense has always been connected with the worship. With oh, got it. Okay. And so frankincense is symbolic that Jesus is God. So at the beginning of Matthew's gospel, you have these, these symbolic gifts that are brought uh, by the wise men. Um, and uh, the third one is myrrh, right? And so... Uh, this is Matthew 2, uh, verse 11. Um, and going to the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Right. And so they're already worshiping him. So the, the, amazingly, the wise men seem to know something that we don't even know yet in the gospel. They're worshiping him as God. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. So what's myrrh? what they use uh at death yeah on the body exactly they they anoint and embalm jesus with myrrh and so in john 19 let's look at this really quick in john 19 39 so good to have my old bible back i've got my notes in here (laughs) i'm like oh yeah i know exactly where that's at thank you don so john 19 39 uh it says nicodemus who had at first come to him by night came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds weight. And they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths. Now, where else is Jesus bound in linen cloths? In Turin. <laughs> I like that, the shot of Turin. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's not linen, it doesn't say linen, but where else is Jesus like wrapped up in cloths? And, um, stations of the cross on his right? No, nope. I don't know. I'll uh, give you a hint. It's oh, when he's born. Yeah. So they Mary takes <laughs> Jesus right. and she wraps him in swaddling cloths. That's right. Right. <laughs> and <laughs> it's like what you do to Gianna, right? You That's right. Make her feel like she's in the yeah. womb. Do you still do that with her? Swaddle up, yeah, yeah, a little bit, and then now she, had, yeah, they make it more convenient. A little zipper swaddles, but yes, yeah, I've got one of those too. That's right; they're really comfortable. But they, uh, the early church looks at this and they see a parallel. So Jesus, right, is there's myrrh with the wise men. He's wrapped in swaddling cloths, so he's kind of like bound up in cloths. And the same thing is going to happen to him 
when he's buried. And then the third piece here um, uh, is back. It doesn't say it explicitly, but we're used to thinking of Jesus being born in a stable. Yep. Now, Matthew and Luke don't say that, but Patrick and I are talking. When you go to Israel when uh, and the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem is built on the spot of where Jesus is born, and you go down to the basement to the actual spot where we think it happened. Now, does is that really 100% accurate? I don't know. Um, it's debated as pretty much everything in life is. But it's, it's probably right about in that general vicinity right there where Jesus is born. And we know in the ancient world, it's very common. And in that part of Israel, right where the Church of the Nativity is in Bethlehem, there's caves all over the place. And so Jesus, the, the real tradition of the church is Jesus is born in a cave. And that's where they put animals. And so there's a manger, you know, and you, you have wow, the, the nativity okay. scene. Yeah. And so Jesus is born in a cave and he's brought myrrh and he's wrapped in swaddling cloth. Um, sounds familiar. It sounds familiar. And so when Jesus dies, he's going to end up in a cave. Um, and so I love this, right? So um, the gospel wants to show us by this, these two bookends here, that Jesus's birth and his death are connected. Gosh, I picture like, as you're saying this, um, I picture like a big whiteboard, like somebody at one right, point with totally. a big whiteboard, all scripture laid out and just like circling and drawing straight lines yep. to like, here it is, here it is. Yep. And it becomes this constellation of bookends throughout the entire gospels. That's right. And, and I love this. And so again, so this is what should take us beyond. Most of us love Christmas and I don't, you know, I'm, I am been labeled the Scrooge of Lords because I kind of guilt trip people about putting up Christmas trees too early and taking them down too early. And I love that stuff too. I, you know, I've stopped drinking eggnog cause I've got, you know, some priestly poundage clinging to this body, but I love Christmas stuff too. I love decorating and having my Christmas tree up and certain types of Christmas music. I really love. And I just love the season. It's nostalgic. It's beautiful. There's nothing wrong with that. Right. But, but the real reason we rejoice is because Jesus came into this world and Fulton Sheen says this, Jesus, all of us who come into this world, we come in this world and we're looking to live. We want to live. Jesus came into this world to die. Super powerful stuff. Right. With that, and this is, and this is what makes us rejoice at Christmas. Sorry, go ahead. No, I mean, with that concept, and if you're, and that's what I've found so interesting um, with my dad's new living situation. When you focus on that and you realize that reality mm-hmm. um, and Jesus came here to die, it enables you to live. Right. Yeah. And it enables you to live better. That's right. Yeah. Um, I've really been reflecting. I was listening to another guy kind of talk about this um, more of a secular message, but it, it really started to land with me with when you say live better and it, and it brings it back to what's important, yep. you know, not getting caught up in, in the honeydews per yeah. se, but it really is. Um, there's only a handful of things that really matter. Um, and when you see these elderly people and no one has ever said, I wish I would have worked more. Yep. You know, I wish I'd been in my family more. I wish I'd been deeper in my faith, Wish I, all these things you look, you can look back on. Uh, but it really, man, it's been really hitting home. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, and you know, there's two German philosophers who, and and this isn't just them, but um, because Plato talks about this, and lots of great thinkers in history would talk about this, but Hegel and Heidegger, uh, two great thinkers, two thinkers also who got the modern world in a lot of trouble, especially Hegel. Hegel is the one who inspires communism. He doesn't mean to, but that's a whole nother podcast. But Hegel and Heidegger both will talk about how death actually gives meaning to life. Because think of it this way. Um, If you had some, if, if you take something, you got something that you have an infinite amount of, it actually loses its value. Mm-hmm. Right. So I think of like just something just popped into my head right now. If I, if I'm like, if you and I worked at like a rock quarry or something <laughs> and people need rocks, rock for their landscaping in their yards and we've just got an infinite supply of rocks. Yeah. You don't really care about any of them. Right. But if you have something precious, right? If you've got, you've got something that's really, you've only got a couple of, and it's very limited, right? And this even works with, with, um, market economies, right? If you have scarcity that can drive price up, right? Right. Uh, supply and demand, those old rascals. <laughs> but, but what happens is if you only have a couple of something, it, it matters more. Right. Right. And you're going to take care of it. So think of your time that way. Totally. So Hegel and Heidegger both really want to tell us like that your death at the end of your life is actually what makes your life more meaningful. Because if you had an infinite number of days. You'll just get to it tomorrow. Yeah. Today doesn't really matter because there's an infinite number of them coming. Now you got to be careful, right? You might say, well, what about heaven then? If we live for all of eternity. And there's, there's good answers to that that I don't actually want to get into today. Yeah. But, um, but essentially like our death gives meaning to life. You have a certain number of days. Yep. What are you going to do with them? Right. They're not going to go on forever. Uh, today's actually a precious gift of God. And so Jesus's birth already, uh, it already points to his death. And the reason, so back to the feast day, I just want to talk about this for one more minute. The, um, a feast day should remind us of the things that matter in life. And so Christmas, you know, it shouldn't be like, okay, hey guys, I know we were going to celebrate Christmas and have a great family day, but I listened to Gregorian rant and now I'm depressed because <laughs> Christmas is about Jesus coming to die. It's not meant to be that. It's why does Jesus die? He dies because he wants to affirm this world. All right. The God, the father, and really all, all of the members of the Holy Trinity they made this world good and it's, it's the, this world is good enough that God's willing to sacrifice for it and not a small sacrifice as we all know, but the, the ultimate sacrifice and a, a great, one of my favorite meditations, I'm always tempted to preach on this. Uh, so as you all know out there in radio land, all of my ideas and, and sermons and everything else is stolen, but Balthazar has a ser- his, one of his Christmas sermons, uh, his uh, Christmas homilies. Is called setting out into the dark with God. And so you and I, what he talks about is you and I think of Christmas as this time of great light. You know, there's the angel comes to the shepherds and there's this golden light and glory to God uh, in the highest and on earth, peace to people of goodwill. But for God, Balthazar says, if you look at it from Jesus's perspective, the son of God lives in perfect 
light, right? An unapproachable light. Uh, he lives in, he lives in heaven. He lives in the, in the eternity of the blessedness of the Trinity. And so when he enters this world, he's setting out into the darkness. Oh, that's deep. Isn't that, I, this is one of my most, I think it's just so, Balthazar just has a way of looking at things that make you realize how beautiful it is. Yeah. The Christmas is the feast day where the God who dwells in unapproachable light, the love he has for us makes him go out into the dark. Oh, that's deep. Right? Yeah. Gosh, I'm trying to process that. I mean, that's, um, to overcome the darkness, like, it's just such an interesting, um, I guess, dilemma in a way. Like, it's such an interesting thing to really actually reflect on of like, um, what led to that and how, um, how important it was and, and the significance. Mm -hmm. And it's something that when you just read it in scripture, like I kind of just think of the nativity scene, you're like, Oh, this is cute. And like I asked you before, I was like, okay, I know you don't put Jesus in. Um, you have to wait to do that. Like, do you wait to do the the three wise men? Like all that kind of stuff that you kind of just, it's easy to glance over, um, the importance of all of it. Yeah. And I love, but I love that image of sitting out into the dark. And so, <clears throat> so Balthazar in that, in that homily is going to talk about how the same thing we're talking about today is that the Bethlehem leads to Mount Calvary and that the sun to go in search of us, right? And you think of the parable of the lost sheep, um, where the shepherd leaves behind the 99 and he goes to out to one. search to find the one. Yep. In some ways, that's what Christmas is. Christmas is the story where our own sinfulness, the world's story had lost its way. And so God doesn't just stay in his happy place, but he sets out into the dark and he goes, he goes in search of the one that's lost. And that, and in that sermon, Balthazar is going to uh, talk about how that, that darkness of Bethlehem for God is going to lead all the way to the darkness of the tomb that he'll go all the way to the, to the furthest, furthest edge of darkness to bring back those who are far from God. And the light, is that what you would say? So to bring them back to the light. And so, right. So the St. Thomas Aquinas, he talks about, um, there's a principle called exitus reditus. And what that means, it's just Latin and it means all things come from God, but they, but they ultimately fell away from him. And so Jesus comes forth from the father. He goes all the way to the, to the edge of the, the bottom, if you will, to return ready to to bring all things back to God. And so I heard Bishop Barron say this once. He has a great line where he says, with one of Balthazar's more controversial teachings, and in fact, his most controversial teaching, which I don't want to get into too much, but uh, what Balthazar sees is if you imagine like, the father's arms <clears throat> and St. Augustine will refer sometimes to the Holy spirit and to the son as the arms of the father. But if you imagine like trying to embrace the world with two, with your arms going out, 
if God the Father right, is in perfection in heaven and all these things, and all the Trinity is, the Son says, I'll go to the other end. <laughs> right? And so it's like this great kind of arc. Yeah. Where God can capture everything that's in between. And to, to bring it back to himself. Now, you know, that obviously raises a bunch of questions about is everyone saved and those kinds of things. And right. that's not for today. Balthazar, by the way, never explicitly taught that all people were saved. Never did that. Um, but, uh, but it's a super hopeful thing. And I think at least, you know, um, at least what we could say here is that the son of God set out into the dark to go to the furthest edge, right? He went his, he went all the way to the, to the tomb, all the way into death, uh, to find us. And so we don't think of Christmas that way. We don't think of it as being about that. But if you really sat and thought about that, you know, on Christmas day, that's better news than anything else. Right. Well, what we do, we don't believe in truth in this culture anymore or in redemption. And so what we do anymore is we just, uh, what we celebrate is nothing. It's just a random day of like, well, I'm not working today. Yep. And I get to drink spiked eggnog. Which, you know, hey, spiked eggnog sounds pretty good. (laughs) I mean, but but it doesn't have the profundity to speak to our lives as humans that the the Christmas and the the Christian drama really does. So that, I mean, what that, um, what all this means for me, and especially kind of what I've been feeling, but now it just reinforces it. It's kind of like the daily um, fork in the road. Right. Like we live in a world that's, we're so obsessed with, um, approval and other people's opinion. And when you really stare death in the face, you know, right at it. Um, and if you're going to come to, from this place of like, if this is my last day, what's the decision I want to make? And, you know, in the words of the great philosopher Tupac, only God can judge me now. And it's not about other people's opinions. I see opinion. what you did there. You like that? Yeah. That's my Balthazar. Um, it's not about other people's opinion, but we get so wrapped up in, in life today. And do you're saying, you know, what you're saying with there is no truth. But even within when trying to appeal to the truth, you can still get lost in it. You could still get um, caught up in much of the worldly things while trying, you know, we've talked about that too. And in, in the book reference you did, the, eliminating hustle or that book Very that ruthless elimination of her. Yeah. Like yeah. where it's disguised in faith. Um, but it's really a powerful thing that I think if you can take Christmas on and that, you know, the, the image of God with his arms spread out into everyday life and what you're doing, um, I, and which I would hope to do it's, I'm never <laughs> probably so far away from doing that, but just the thought of trying to do that, is so powerful to help you um, focus on what's really important yep. and, and those daily decisions that you make um, again, to just strive for the right things. Yeah, no, that's right. Um, powerful stuff. Yeah. Right. And so yeah, Balthazar in that homily again, he's going to talk about <clears throat> the call then for us is that we, once we've been found in Christ and we've experienced the joy of him in our life, that we're called to set out into the dark as well. To, not because we love the dark, but to bring the light into the darkness. Uh, and 
that evoked John chapter one, right? John chapter one. Uh, let me read it precisely so I don't get it wrong. But uh, in John one, the the evangelist says this. He says, uh, verse nine: the true light that enlightens every man was coming into the world. Right, the true light that enlightens every man was coming into the world. That's I think Balthazar probably had this verse in mind when he wrote that sermon. Um, skipping down a little bit, uh, John 1 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us full of grace and truth. Um, we have beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten son from the father. Um, anyway, and then last one, I should jump back to verse five. This is my favorite kind of verse in the beginning of John's gospel. John 1, 5, it says, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Um, and so it's fitting where we're in, in Christmas time, the light is growing in terms of the, the year. The early Christians loved the symbolism that the light, we now move from where the days grow shorter and the darkness is greater. And right around Christ's birth, the light that has come into the world begins to grow. Whoa. I don't know if I actually piece that together. Isn't that cool? That's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. So the church always, the church never said, you know, we know for sure this is when Jesus was born. That's not the point. The point is that all of creation speaks to the mystery of the faith and the true light that, that, that brings joy and happiness and life to everyone is Christ. And so it was fitting that the church said, we'll have this at this time of year because from here on out, the light grows. <laughs> wow. That's deep. Yeah. All right, folks, I got to get running. I've got my next appointment. So everybody pray for Jeff. He's in our CIA. He's considering the Catholic church. And uh, by the time you hear this, our appointment will be done. That's right. But I think that God hears prayers regardless. So say a prayer for him. That's right. And, uh, I hope you all have a very Merry Christmas. We are um, just so grateful for all of you that listen, somehow you listen and, and uh, you sharing it. And hopefully we can provide some sort of clarity um, to the Christian life and, yeah. and Catholicism in general. So, yep. And so Merry Christmas, may the light of Christ, right? The, the light that shines in the darkness, may that enlighten you this Christmas. May it be a different year for you this year, not just a year of, you know, another day off or something, but actually uh, may today and, and, and all this Christmas season, may it be a day where you celebrate the true light. Merry Christmas.